Hello, everyone. My name is Johnny Webster, and this is Just Johnny Joy, the podcast. Oh, hello, everyone. Here we are. It's my first episode. I'm so excited. I am so excited. I can't even contain the the excitement I have. First of all, the setup is amazing. I have a mic. <laughs> I have a headphones. I have this really cool like board. It's like very fancy. It has all kinds of special effects. Special effects? Sound effects. <laughs> Sound effects. Um and I just I feel so legit. So, we're going to jump in to this first episode which is all about me obviously. <laughs> and let's just have a little discussion. Let's talk about joy. Let's talk about pain. Let's talk about everything. Because as I always say, joy is everything and anything. So let's jump in. So growing up, I always felt like I was different, right? Like I knew that I liked boys more than I liked girls. I knew that I was different because of the color of my skin. I'm black, I'm gay, I'm from the South. <laughs> so these are like very distinctive things that like are also the reason why who I am today. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and I lived in South Memphis, <laughs> which I loved. I lived in a housing projects called Lemoyne Gardens LMG what what <laughs> I'm so not gangster and I even I'm so not gangster that I said gangster and not gangster um I remember as a kid growing up in the projects and it was a community like people can say what they want to say about the ghetto and the inner city and the projects but like it was a community i felt safe because like a family families take care of each other families fight families disagree there was so much disagreement in my neighborhood but i never felt unsafe i always felt protected by the other people in my community i had at growing up i had a older brother who was a couple years older than me and we weren't close and i don't really know why i don't remember that much about our relationship that young i just remember we weren't close i was very close to my mom and my aunts i didn't have any uncles and my mom was like my everything she was everything to me i wanted to be like her i wanted to dress like her i even fun fact pee sitting down <laughs> cuz that's what my mom did um <laughs> and i would go to my aunt's house every like sunday and watch a movie i had friends i danced with the girls i even played with some boys i even kissed a boy <laughs> i got in trouble for that I had such a great like early years. Oh, also, by the way. <laughs> this is embarrassing. But when I was maybe 5, 
three to f- between three and five, I accidentally burned an apartment complex down. Um, yes, I was. So my one of my aunts who was babysitting me because my mom was at work. She smoked. My mom smoked cigarettes. And I loved my mom and I wanted to be like my mom and I would make these like paper cigarettes and I'd roll up this paper and like pretend to smoke it. Well, this time I lit it because my aunt was asleep and I lit it. And, and then like as a kid, like I blew it out and put it behind the couch where I was hiding and I went to take a nap. And then the next thing I remember is I'm wait, I'm outside of the building and it's burning down. Um, and my mom was like running home from work to like make sure I was okay my mom was my hero and she experienced something that was really painful for me and obviously for her, but she experienced domestic abuse by someone who I don't have a relationship with today, but is in my, one of my sister's lives. I have two younger sisters. Um, we all have different dads, so we have different relationships with, with the men in our lives Um, I did not know my dad growing up. I didn't meet my dad until I was maybe 15, 14, 13, 14. Um, And that was not a great experience. But my mom was being physically abused. I I didn't want to tell this story because it's not my story to tell. But I know that if I want to get to the true authenticity of my joy and who I am today, I have to express this Um, Mom, I love you, and I'm sorry that you experienced that. And it broke me, and it was the beginning of me learning how to keep secrets because I couldn't tell anyone. But everyone knew, obviously, because she would have black eyes, but no one in my school knew. No one of my friends really knew. And so I started keeping secrets. And then I had to keep my own secret. Um, because around eight or nine, I was, I went through my own sexual abuse. And that experience is a lot to unpack. And I cannot unpack that here. I have since unpacked and I've moved through it. But what I will say to anyone that has, and my family doesn't know that. So this is very revealing. And I've never told anyone in my family. And I will never tell them who it was um, because that's not important for me and for them. If you have gone through this experience, it is within your right to tell who you want to tell, when you want to tell and how you want to tell. I am not a therapist. I don't know what is right and what is wrong. I know that for me, it did not make sense. Um, and it still to this day does not make sense. But that is that was a very... Um, jarring experience as a kid um, because not only was my mom being physically abused, I was being sexually abused and I also was learning to keep secrets. I was losing my joy that I had as a kid, dancing with the girls, playing jump rope, double dutch, hopscotch. I even went to, so I went to a boys club when I was six, the, the Goodwill Boys Club, which is now the Goodwill Boys and Girls Club. And I played with, I literally would play sports. I mean, played sports is a very loose way of saying I just was on the field running around, flailing like a little lady. (laughs) But I loved it. The boys club was um, 
my saving grace during that time. I went after school every day and I felt safe and I, I, I was able to have relationships with adults that made me feel safe, that made me feel seen and made me feel heard. And right next to the Boys and Girls Club, across the street from the Lemoyne Gardens was a historically black college called Lemoyne Owen College. And the students at that school worked at the Boys Club. I did not want to talk about this. Um, and the students worked at the boys and the boys club and then it became the boys and girls club. And those students showed me that there was life outside of my circumstances. I didn't hate being in the projects because that's all I knew. I just hated being poor. I hated that my mom had to work three to four jobs to take care of us. I hated that I didn't get the things that I wanted, although I now know that I got everything I needed. My mom provided for us in every which way. She kept us safe um, from the abuser in her life. Um, and for a while, I hated her that I did that she didn't protect me from my abuser, but she didn't know. And I don't fault her for that. I'm going to take a second and come back. Growing up, the way that I grew up with the trauma that I experienced, I grew up really fast. I was doing things that a 14, 15-year-old shouldn't be doing, hanging around people that I shouldn't have been hanging around with. I was exploring my sexuality way too soon, way too young. And as a result, I have, I have really unhealthy relationships with intimacy and sex. And that is part of the work that I do in my recovery today as a sober person. But as a kid and as a teenager, you're just going through life, holding on to these secrets. You know, I hadn't yet come out yet and I hadn't yet fully formed my being because it was blocked, it was shut off. And so I just started to just live and make believe. Escapism was my first addiction. Escapism was the first time where I got to be outside of myself. And my escapism was in television. I became obsessed with TV. I would watch TV all day. But my escapism in television and in watching people perform and live their dreams led me to knowing that I love to dance and I love to perform and I love to put on shows. And I so desperately wanted to dance and perform, but I didn't grow up in an environment where that was nurtured. I didn't grow up in a world where like boys dance or I didn't get called sissy or faggot or gay or feminine, or he acts like a girl, he talks like a girl. And so I just started to shut down. And I started to pretend to be something that I wasn't. And as a result of that, I started to have very dysfunctional relationships with men, with women, with my sexuality. I just did not know how to have a relationship. I was so, I would pretend that my, my parents were someone else. I would pretend that I had a dad and he was this person and that person. I, I was just lost. And I was just going through life, like just figuring it out as I go, as I went, you know. And I 
thankfully, because of I go back to the Boys and Girls Club, I was able to stay on a path. My brother went to his path, which was gangs and drugs and jails and prisons. And I went my path, which was the Boys and Girls Club, which was staying in school, which was focusing on my education. And then I had another responsibility. I had two younger sisters that I needed to be there for. I wanted to protect them so that they did not have to experience any of the trauma that I experienced. And as a result of taking care of my sisters and being there for my mother, I forgot about me and I forgot to take care of me. And so I went through life learning how to take care of other people. I went through life knowing that or believing that if I did for other people, then I would be liked and taken care of and I would be seen and I would be heard. And, and that eventually led to just a not happy internal existence. But I knew how to fake it, you know, because I had to learn how to fake it. I had to learn to pretend that I wasn't going through this trauma of my own. I had to pretend that I wasn't hurting because of my mom, because I had a sister, a younger sister that I needed to, to protect. I had a, two younger sisters at, a, at, a, at one point that I needed to protect. And so I had to be the protector. I had to be the provider. I had to be the savior. And eventually I learned that drinking made that pain go away. Drinking made me invincible. It made me more fun. It made me feel more likable. Did all the things that I needed it to do at the time to exist. It's how I showed up for people. I needed to drink to show up for people because it was exhausting. It shed some of the insecurities that I had about not being enough. Always feeling like that poor black kid from Memphis. And I just drank. And I drank. And I drank. And I hid it really well. No one knew that I drank as much as I did. I didn't even realize I drank as much as I did until I needed to get sober. I got sober in 2015 because I had to. I was dying slowly inside. I didn't lose anything. I still had my career as a talent manager. My clients were doing well. I was doing well. I was successful. I had friends. I was just like on top of the world to everyone around me. And so I proceeded to get sober. And I was getting sober around the time where my job at New Wave was ending. I was starting a new job at a new company. And it was just like, it was like, I was miserable. I was, my solution, alcohol, was gone. And I was left with me. And that's the thing about being sober and about recovery is once you take away the solution, we've, we perceive to be the solution, we're left with us. I'm left with me. And I now have to deal with me. And I don't have the medicine, the alcohol to like get me through the day. I got to get through the day on my own. How the F am I supposed to do that? I was not doing well internally. My outward attainment, which doesn't matter, was good. I was working. I was, you know, looking good and feeling good. And everyone thought I was good, but I was still, I was still dying. And I didn't know why. I did not know why. And then I started to get more successful. 
and I started to get more seemingly happy. But that wasn't it. And then I hit five years sober right when the pandemic happened in 2020. And I was cracked open. Ahmaud Arby happened. George Floyd happened and Breonna Taylor happened. And I was, it was a reckoning. And it was a, a, a reckoning for the world. It was a reckoning for me as a black man in this country, as a black man in the industry, as a black gay man in this country. I was fired up and I was angry for the first time I allowed myself to be angry. And anger is an emotion that I don't love. It's an emotion that I hide. I hide because... It's scary. Growing up the way that I grew up, I had a lot of anger and I never knew how to deal with it. And I've always hid it and run away from it. But I allowed myself to get angry in 2020. I had nowhere to go. I wasn't going to see anyone. I wasn't going to. So I was like, I'm going to get angry and I'm going to channel that anger on Instagram. And my Instagram changed drastically. I got more, more, more honest, more vocal. I got more black. I decided after George Floyd, that there was no one in this world, particularly there is no white person in this world that is going to tell me how to exist in this country, in my body. I was born black, I was born gay, and I will be black and gay in America. And there is no one that's going to take that away from me. And I started to open up and honestly share because I no longer cared what people in the industry thought if my clients were going to be offended. I didn't care anymore because the world didn't care. And didn't care. So screw the world, screw this and screw that. I'm going to be authentically black. I'm going to tap into that black boy from Memphis who grew up in LMG. And that's all that matters. And I was like, living in that authenticity. And as I lived authentically in my blackness, I found joy. I found black boy joy. And I was not going to let anyone or anything take that away from me. I got to protest. I got to march with my people and stand up for our rights. I got to post whatever I wanted to post, and I didn't care what anyone thought, not my colleagues, not my coworkers, not my clients, not anyone, because none of them were black. I had black clients, but they weren't. They didn't have an issue. But if you weren't black, you do not have the right to tell me how to exist, how to protest. And when I started to like live in that black boy joy I finally realized what had been missing for so long in my life, and it was joy. I remember being a little black boy in Memphis in joy, and I remember when that joy was taken away from me, and I remember when that joy was found again in 2020, and it was incredible because I learned in the Book of Joy by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu that joy subsumes happiness. Joy is a far greater thing. And I was like, well, what does subsume mean? I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but I looked it up. 
And it means to absorb, to include. So it's saying that joy absorbs happiness. Joy includes happiness, but joy is far greater. And that's what I love about joy is it's far greater than happiness. Like joy keeps going. You know, it is the light beyond the light at the end of the tunnel. Like it just keeps going. It exists within me. And even when I'm feeling down or I'm in my anxiety or in my depression, I still know that I have joy. I can still dance. I can still be of service to others. And it doesn't require me to be happy. It requires me to to do for others. And that's one of the really great things about joy is that we find joy by helping others. It's so beautiful. When I'm doing something for other people, I'm in my joy. And I don't need to be happy to do that. I just need to know that I'm in joy. So that's my story. That's my journey. That's my joy. I'm so excited for you to come on this journey with me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here with me. I am just so thrilled and so happy and so joyous (laughs) to have this time with you. I don't take it lightly and I'm just really honored that you spend this time with me and that you took the time to get to know me and hear about me. And I can't wait for you to hear everyone else. So I'll see you again. Wait, I'll wait. I'll see you again. No, I'll, you'll hear me again. I don't like that either. Well, you know what? I'm going to figure it out until next time. Bye everyone. (laughs) 